Hey there, welcome to The Third Seat. This is the show where we have open and honest dialogues with experts who have a unique perspective to share straight to you. I'm your host, Daniel Trinum with Croft & Frost, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode. As always, all links as well as relative information will be in the description of this episode down below. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's join into the conversation. My guest today is someone that I've gotten to chat with them a little bit over the uh, previous months and weeks and gotten to know a little bit about them and their work and just what they do here in the Chattanooga area. Um, and I'm really excited to chat with them today. Uh, there's different individuals that do work similar to them, uh, but it's not often you get the chance to chat with them one-on-one -on -one to hear about their line of work, uh, what brought them to where they are, and just to hear a little about their own personal story and where they, uh, how they got to where they are now. So, uh, Sheba, it's nice to talk with you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so uh, before we go just a little bit, uh, before we really jump into things, so uh, I know you do a myriad of different things. I was kind of looking into just some of your work in the past and just what you're currently doing. Um, you know, just your, your myriad of experiences leading up to right now. Do you care to just dive into a little bit about presently what you're doing at, you know, at this very moment, what you're presently working on doing right now? Yeah, so yeah. primarily I'm an anxiety relief therapist. Okay. I help high achievers who are struggling with high functioning anxiety, mm. imposter syndrome, mm. and relationship stress. So is, and I, I initially, whenever I came across you, I was very interested in uh, what you referred to as high, high achievers, and what was, what was the second part? High functioning anxiety. Yeah, high, fun yeah, high achievers with high functioning anxiety. And I'd never heard that, that phrase before. Like I'd never heard that, that combination of words prior to run, you know, coming across uh, just your page online and everything. And yeah. so I was really curious, just one, for you personally, was this career that you found yourself in, was this something that you wanted to do from day one? You you know, growing up, it's like, this is something I really want to do. Or was this something more that over time, your experiences led you to wanting to work into in this field just over time? Was it something that you kind of grew into or is it something that you always wanted to do? Very broad question. Yeah, I like, to, I like to ask the broad questions. It gets, it usually gets good answers, so. Yeah, and so in terms of the clientele I work with, the, the phrasing that you might not be used to, mm -hmm. you might have seen anxious achiever. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. anxious achiever. And that is not who I always worked with. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I didn't go to school to become a mental health therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually started uh, with the I was doing pre-med. Okay. Yeah. And that was my family's desire, yeah. my family's wish for me. Yeah. And I actually always had an interest in psychology growing up, especially mm -hmm. because I had family members that struggled mm -hmm. with mental health. Mm -hmm. But I was told that I would not be able to make a living mm -hmm. with, uh, with that degree. So I decided to follow my parents' advice. Mm -hmm. So my family is from South India. Okay. Um, they're from the tip of India called Kerala. All right. They're immigrants, and we moved to New York. Really? And then we, yeah. How old were you when you moved there? So, I say we. They moved to New York. <laughs> I was born in New oh, okay. York. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah, I was born in New York, and then around the age of 12, came to Tennessee. Okay. Yeah. And so that was going to boomerang back to... Yeah my career path somehow. <laughs> but oh yeah, the main reason that we moved to Tennessee was yeah. because of mom's mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to get closer to family. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I was interested in psychology, but it didn't really seem like my parents were gonna support me on mm -hmm. that path. 
they wanted me to live the American dream. Yeah, yeah. Most Indians end up being uh, nurses yeah. or doctors, yeah. something in the medical field mm -hmm. or engineers, but mm -hmm. I don't fit the stereotype of being yeah. math inclined. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It just wasn't um, for you, you know? It yeah. just wasn't for me. Yeah. And so even though in my freshman year I started off that way, I had a set of life experiences that made me super interested in my intro to psychology class. Mm -hmm. So against their wishes, <laughs> eventually I went a divergent path. Nice, nice. Yeah, and even then, their influence was still on me. What yeah. I mean is, yeah. I was like, okay, so how can I do this and make bank? Or <laughs> at least be prestigious, you know, yeah. have something yeah. that I could be proud of because I guess in their mind, they were thinking like social workers, mm -hmm. like they're the lower rung. Yeah. It was kind of an elitist mentality. Yeah. And unfortunately, I bought into that, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'll get my PhD. I'll be a professor, yeah. you know, I'll write books and uh, <laughs> I'll do seminars and all this kind of stuff. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. Yeah. Um, but then in junior year, I took a course on social justice. Oh, nice. And in the social justice course, I learned about human trafficking before it was cool mm -hmm. to be interested in, yeah. you know, things like yeah. that. And uh, specifically, there was an emphasis on women in India and how they were sex trafficked. Mm -hmm. So I kind of saw myself in the mirror yeah. and then I heard about the struggles yeah. and then I noticed that it's not, or I learned that it's not just about rescuing them and pulling them out of the situation, yeah. but it's about rehabilitating them, yeah. helping them heal, helping mm -hmm. them recover, mm -hmm. changing their mindset, changing mm -hmm. their worldview. And mm -hmm. then I saw the value mm -hmm. of social work, yeah. of counseling, um, of the mental emotional rehabilitation. Yeah. So I definitely had a conversion experience yeah, of sorts, yeah. you could say. Yeah. And from there, I decided, you know what? I think I want to get my master's in mental health counseling. Nice. And just as you're describing this, and this has been a, you know, everybody's story is different, but something I've seen with a lot of people, both on the show and just individuals I've met and just encountered in my own life is that uh, what your specific story so far tells me is that you know, I think all of us at some point in our life say, you're like, oh, I would love to, you know, do A or do B, like, you know, the classic story of like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a firefighter, like, you know, that's what all, like, what every kid says, like, I want to be an astronaut, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you set your sights on as a, as a young individual. And sometimes people do those exact things. They say, I want to do this, and that's exactly what they do, and, you know, when they grow up and have a career, and that's what they do. Uh, but oftentimes, what I have seen in both my own life and just other individuals is that, it where where people start and where they get to is not a linear path yeah. it is it is not oftentimes that's our our hope is like we want to go straight to where we want to be but where we end up is more indicative of the you know experiences we've had the ups and the downs the trials and tribulations that have led us to that point uh, you know, for you specifically, it seems like a lot of your experiences that you had, both uh, just as a young individual and as you grew up and went to college, those decisions and experiences impacted your desires and what you wanted to do in the future. And if it wasn't for those experiences, you may not be doing what you're doing now. Uh, but I think that goes to show that, you know, life is complicated for one and that there's going to be ups and downs. But those ups and downs make us who we are. It makes you know you do what you do now. Uh, it allows us to have new new experiences that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise if we didn't branch out a little bit. Uh, so I think that's really cool that you you were willing to kind of take a step in a different direction and uh, you know move somewhere that maybe you weren't you know entirely sure if that was you know the right place for you, but you took a, a leap of faith out and and went out for it. I really think that, I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. and even then. 
making the decision to do a master's in mental yeah. health counseling, yeah. that's still eons away from specializing in yeah. becoming a anxiety relief therapist. Yeah. So yeah. I'll tell you a little bit more about the arc yeah. and the, the, the journey, the mountains and the valleys that <laughs> led me to yeah. being where I am today. So when I started um, my internship in the field, I worked for Sky Ridge Hospital mm -hmm. in Cleveland, Tennessee. I yeah. believe it's now Tanova. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, that's close to my hometown. Yeah. Ah, yeah. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, now I'm curious what brought you to Chattanooga, but maybe we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll go into that next, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, they had a, a mental health treatment facility called Pine Ridge Treatment Center. And I hit the ground running. I mean, you go to school, you take all the classes, you think you're going to be ready, yeah. and then you just find out it's that's nothing like- That's like, like this much of it. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I really feel like I was thrown into the fire because yeah. my role was a um, helping as an intake therapist, at least as an intern. Eventually, I formally became an intake therapist, but mm -hmm. that was basically the gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. And the gatekeeper would- kind of triage who came through the doors mm -hmm. and the kind of things that I would see and work with was uh, psychosis, suicidality, mm -hmm. um, substance use. And so here I am, a little fledgling, yeah. <laughs> dealing with some of the most hardest, most difficult things mm -hmm. that you know a person can, can encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it felt really good though, because I was under the 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 leadership of a gentleman named phil mm -hmm. and uh i consider him my my, my father yeah. or my yeah. mentor because he really <laughs> just took me under his wing yeah. and he really built me up because he was like you have the it factor yeah and i was like what, what do you mean <laughs> uh he he was so impressed that i came with a clipboard and that i had a pen mm. and that i was writing down everything mm. and i was like isn't this what everybody does <laughs> And he's like, no. Yeah. Uh, so usually he just had to tell me something once and then I would go home and yeah. memorize it and then I would come in and then I would just hit the ground running and just yeah. do the things. And yeah. so my internship very quickly turned into a position. Mm -hmm. And I worked closely with the psychiatrists on staff and there mm -hmm. were probably three to five of them. And it also felt good that I was able to build a relationship of, of, of trust with them mm -hmm. where if I made a decision, they felt comfortable about, oh, that's what you think needs yeah. to happen. Okay, we'll send that person yeah. there. Oh, that's the diagnosis you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And so it was a really good experience to just have that exposure, yeah. trial by fire. Yeah, of course. Um, but I was doing nights and weekends. Yeah, yeah, you're burning, burning the candle both ends, you know. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So it was super intense. And it really wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. I did it for about a year and a half mm -hmm. and then decided, you know what? I'm not happy here and mm -hmm. not because of the hours, mm -hmm. but because I wanted to see people through the long game. Mm -hmm. When you're working at an inpatient facility, mm -hmm. you just see them for three days, maybe yeah. seven days. You maybe do a group here or there with them. Yeah. Um, but you don't really get to know their story and you it's don't get to- It's very transactional, yeah. It's very transactional. Yeah. It was very brief. And so I found the richness and the value in really walking mm -hmm. through something yeah. with a person. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I wanna do more long-term work. Yeah. So I switched from the hospital setting to a community health mm -hmm. setting. Um, so it wasn't, it was a lower level of care, but uh, to briefly describe the clientele, you could, it's probably fair to just uh, say that they were the 10 care population. Mm -hmm. And so they would struggle with uh, 
financial issues, various health issues, mm -hmm. uh, blended family. Um, again, got to see a lot mm -hmm. and understand the bigger picture of like what got them here, mm -hmm. the systems and processes that were in place, mm -hmm. um, the things that kept them there. Yeah. Um, and it was another burning the candle at both ends kind of situation because I was both an in-home therapist yeah. and uh, in office therapist. So gotcha. I had this hybrid setup where I would physically go to their homes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was rough, sometimes it was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times uh, people think, oh, here's the kid, fix the kid. Because yeah. I worked with children, teens, and adults. Mm -hmm. um, but especially when I did in-home visits, I was working with the young people and they'd be like, fix the kid. But then I'm like, oh man, it's not just an individual thing. Yeah. There is a whole ecosystem that they're living in. Mm -hmm. And if the environment isn't favorable to support their psychological and their emotional development, they're gonna struggle. Yeah. They're gonna act out. Yeah. They're not gonna make good grades. Yeah. Um, and so it was really hard for me in terms of my heart because I knew that the parents and the teachers were doing the best that they could with the resources that they had, but they were just severely under-resourced. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't bring about the change yeah. that I wanted to see yeah. as quickly and as broadly yeah. as I wanted to see. So that was really hard for me. And then even though I wasn't doing nights and weekends anymore, actually I did still do some weekends, um, I was seeing about 30 people every week. Mm -hmm. And again, 30 of some of the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories. Yeah. So did that for about a year and a half and then yeah. realized, wow, this is not tenable for yeah. me as well. Yeah. And I had a graduate level degree. Mm -hmm. I was accumulating um, hours for licensure mm -hmm. and I was barely making mm -hmm. what someone with a high school degree yeah. would have yeah. and I didn't have health insurance. Yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah. So I realized, okay, I need to, I need to move on and I need to find something else. Yeah. And, uh, I did something that was very atypical for <laughs> people uh, in my culture, yeah. I'll say, because yeah. uh, Indians, they usually want security. Yeah. They always have a backup plan. Yeah. Um, risk is not really part of their I get that. vocabulary. Listen, I, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean as a very risk averse individual myself. I know, I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so other than things on the job, I was dissatisfied with leadership mm -hmm. and how leadership was executing things mm -hmm. and how I felt that leadership wasn't looking at the well-being of the clients and the clinicians who were providing care. Mm -hmm. And so I was vocal about what I believe needed to change and they weren't very happy <laughs> with my <laughs> suggestions. And so it was also really hard to have so many ideas yeah. and to be able to read in between the lines mm -hmm. and to see where there were weaknesses in the structure and to just feel powerless and, yeah. and helpless yeah. in the situation. And so I, in terms of the, the core values that I had, I decided, you know what? I'm okay with going unemployed for mm -hmm. a period of time until I find my next thing because yeah. I can't stay here. Not yeah. in good conscience. Yeah. Not in good conscience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's when I decided to leave. And then I studied for my licensure exams because it just worked out timing wise yeah. that I had enough hours. Yeah after the, the three years of work um, in that time period. And so uh, apparently timing was really in my favor because I, I, took the, I took the exams, I passed them, and within 60 days I got licensed. Mm -hmm. So now I was like, now what am I gonna do? Because yeah. I don't wanna go to the hospital again, I don't really wanna do community health again, and quite personally, I didn't wanna open up a private practice mm -hmm. because my family had owned a business mm -hmm. 
And I saw how difficult it yeah. was to yeah. run a family business. Yeah. I mean, I had to stand in the gap and help my father <laughs> a ton of times when yeah. he had to travel yeah. or like when I mentioned um, family members had like mental health struggles. Yeah. Like I really had to step it up and I was just like, I don't want to take on that level of yeah. responsibility. Yeah. Uh, it was just too negatively charged for me. So I was like, what am I gonna do? Yeah. Um, but I was just very fortunate to have built strong relationships with professionals in the area because one of the psychiatrists took an interest in me mm -hmm. and she already had a group practice set up and everything was basically 75% functional and I just had to be a therapist. Yeah, you just had to, you just had to be there for the job. Yes. Yeah. And so I got to learn. I, I, I was so grateful for the opportunity. I definitely took advantage of it. Yeah. Um, I learned how things worked in the office. Mm -hmm. And then everything that was scary and intimidating, I was able to overcome because yeah. I saw how the office manager handled it. And I noticed some other therapists kind of branching out and doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, I just, I keep finding that I'm a big fish in a small pond. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just find myself moving to the next pond when I feel like I've outgrown the space that I was in. Yeah, yeah. So up to that point, um, it was 2016 when I got licensed. Yeah. And then it was 2018 when I, no, it was between 2016 and 2018 that I was working with the group practice. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018, once I, got a feel and a hang for things, the group practice had some changes that I wasn't comfortable with, that I didn't want to work with, yeah. and I figured I could do better on my yeah. own. Yeah. And so I really branched out in 2018. Yeah. Now, up until 2018, I was seeing everyone under the sun. Mm -hmm. Like, open up the DSM, which is basically the Bible for therapists, mm -hmm. and all the diagnoses, I, I saw them, and yeah. I treated them, and I felt equipped. Yeah. And so it was tough, though, because I was good at a lot of things, but just because you're good at a lot of things doesn't mean that it's, you know, in your best interest mm -hmm. to be involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually a very... Um, my heart feels yeah. <laughs> the people that I am with. Well, you, you have a, I, the, the thing that I've been thinking just throughout this whole, you describing just how you got to where you are now is, uh, one, the work you do is, I imagine, very crucial for these individuals. But I imagine it takes a bit of a, I guess I'll say an, an emotional toll on you. Because, That's you know, you're, you're not, uh, you know, what, what you are doing is, I imagine, very intimate with these people. It's gonna be different from person to person. Obviously, each, in, each individual situation is different. Um, but it sounds like to me the work you do is not just, you know, talking about your day, just shooting the breeze. You're, you're getting down to the nitty gritty with these people. You're really learning about who they are as individuals and, un, you know, unpacking things that maybe they're not comfortable sharing with other individuals or, you know, you're really getting to know these people on a very uh, personal and intimate level. And so I could, I could very well see how that would take uh, some degree of a toll on you just over time. Uh, but, you know, that comes with the job in a lot of ways, I imagine, you know. Absolutely, yeah. and so I found myself investing so much into each individual. Yeah. Um, and especially for the more <coughs> difficult cases that other therapists couldn't quite crack, they would come my way. <laughs> and then for some reason we would click and then I would be able to help them yeah. in the long run. But like you said, it did take a toll on me. Yeah. And so even though originally I was seeing closer to like 30 clients, mm -hmm. 
Now I was seeing more like 20 to 25. Mm -hmm. But again, with the, the range and the intensity and the severity of the things that they were going through, mm -hmm. it was a lot on me. And I can't, I was passionate about everyone becoming more whole and mm -hmm. more healthy, but I wasn't necessarily passionate about the specific topics mm -hmm. that they were struggling with. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so I want to be in this field for the long term. Mm -hmm. I, there are so many therapists that leave after mm -hmm. three years, five mm -hmm. years, 10 years. I'm like, what do I need to do if I wanna be in it for the next 30 years? Mm -hmm. So I realized, okay, some things need to change. And while I was thinking things need to change with the especially difficult clients, I realized, oh, the missing piece is a word that people don't usually like to hear or get close to you, the word trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking trainings to learn what it meant to be a trauma-informed therapist. And then I was fascinated because I realized, oh, there's not a one-size-fits-all trauma because you just think yeah. of maybe PTSD, yeah. you think of veterans, yeah. um, but there's quite a spectrum. And I learned that there's big T trauma and mm -hmm. also little T trauma mm -hmm. and that all of us to some degree have experienced big or little T trauma mm -hmm. in our lives. Yeah. And so it was just a completely different way of approaching individuals their contacts, the things mm. that they were holding and struggling with. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, between 2016 and 2018, I started realizing, oh, I have some big T <laughs> and little T trauma in my life. Yeah. And so then I realized, wow, I have some inner work that I myself need to do. Mm -hmm. And prior to that point, I wouldn't have thought that I was a candidate for therapy. Mm -hmm. If anything, I would have thought that maybe the term for being a high achiever, mm -hmm. someone who was ambitious, yeah. someone who um, was a rock, was the independent one, the, 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 the go-to, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, solved people's problems, yeah. put them yeah. at ease. Yeah. And so it's like, why would I need therapy, yeah. Yeah. right? People come to me so that they don't yeah. have to go to therapy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in my personal life. Um, but then I realized, ooh, I have a pattern of over-functioning. Mm -hmm. I have a pattern of overdoing it. I have a pattern of spreading myself thin. Ooh, I can be a perfectionist. Yeah. Ooh, sometimes I want to, it, it's so hard for me to see people struggling, mm -hmm. be sad, or hurt in any way that I'll swoop in <laughs> and I will take care of things yeah. for them. Yeah. But then again, I'm just one person. Yeah, there's always so much you can do. Yeah. Wearing all these hats, all these costumes, not having the best boundaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I realized, okay, I'm an over-functioner. Yeah. And the way that big T and little t trauma has manifested in my life is making me someone who overdoes it mm -hmm. instead of someone who underdoes it. Mm -hmm. And so then that's when I started realizing, okay, I have high functioning anxiety in mm -hmm. my life. And the reason it's called high functioning mm -hmm. is because it's not diagnosable mm -hmm. because in order to be a diagnosis you have to not be able to function yeah. in certain realms yeah so those of us that are over functioning are usually lauded mm -hmm. people are usually like wow how do you do it mm -hmm. how do you find the time in the day da, 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 yeah. da, da. so you're praised and you think oh this is the way that it's supposed to be or mm -hmm. this is the ideal thing but really it's wearing away yeah. at your health and wellness mm -hmm. So in addition to looking in the mirror and realizing, wow, I've got some unresolved things that are just making me go, go, go busy all the mm -hmm. time that I'm trying to avoid mm -hmm. by stuffing away my feelings yeah. and just, you know, yeah. doing all just, the things. Just keeping your hands busy, you know. Yes. 
I ended up having several health issues yeah. that made it untenable yeah. to keep going at the speed yeah. that I was going in. Yeah. yeah. So I've said a lot to this point, but you see how we're getting closer and yeah. closer to specialization. Yeah. 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 Well, well, I see how, for one, you did a great job of, of describing what, you know, obviously the word anxiety, like that takes, a, there's a lot of different paths with that. Uh, just that particular subject, but specifically what you're referring to is in, as in high-functioning anxiety. It, the, the picture that comes to mind is is just is an individual that is being stretched in every direction yes. and is being just pulled mm-hmm. has no time for anything you know mm-hmm. to themselves almost. Um, and so that's a I think that one I can see how your personal experiences that you've shared have led you to be specialized and to want to work in this field because. One, it's something that just your experiences have led you to, but two, as you said, it's it's personal to you. It's something that you understand on a uh, both clinical and personal level. It's yes. not just something you know the technical know-how, mm-hmm. but you know what it's like to be in both on both sides of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that's really cool um, and, and something that you know there are specializations for every part of our lives, um, but it's always interesting to see an individual and hear how they got to where they are with their specialization. Um, One thing I do want to ask you, and and I was curious to just get your thoughts on this. You you mentioned it towards the beginning of our conversation, and I know we talked a little bit about it when we initially met over Zoom, um, is this whole idea of imposter syndrome uh, and and what that all means. The the first time I, I remember, I'd probably heard it before, but the first time it really ever sunk in with me personally was I was in college and I was working on this really big uh, project at the time and I had very low expectations for it because it was a very competitive, we, we were in like this uh, project competition basically with other schools and I, I just thought that like, you know, uh, other people knew more than what they were doing than I did and I just didn't, I, I didn't feel like I was the right person for that place but we ended up performing very well and ended up winning the competition Mm. and I chatted with our professor that was leading it and he was we were all kind of sharing these same thoughts and he was like this is what imposter syndrome feels like like you Mm. you don't feel like you're in the spot like you deserve to be in the spot that you're in but the reality is oftentimes you do even if you don't realize it like you deserve to be where you are because you you are here you've proven that you deserve to be where you are and that was kind of the first time it sunk into me to where I didn't Part of me was like, I don't feel like I'm the right person for this. This like, I don't feel like I deserve to be in this spot. But the the evidence says otherwise, you know, to a degree. And so I wanted. To, I'm sure there's different ways it can be applied and different ways to understand it. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on what exactly that is and what that looks like in someone's life and just how we as individuals can tackle that problem as a whole. If that makes sense. Sure. So here's something that I'm curious about because I like to see things um, with a big picture. And part of my theory with imposter syndrome is it doesn't just kick in one day in your 20s or 30s. -hmm. It's actually been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to knit this back into when I asked about you coming to Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about your story and your arc, like moving here and yeah, some of your experience with school. Yeah. So uh, how, how I got here, so I'm not originally from Chattanooga, I'm from about an hour up the road, a really small town called Inglewood, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got about a thousand people, it's a, it's a tiny little town with one stoplight, uh, very, very, small, very small town, um, and it was a place where everybody knows everybody, uh, you know, you're, everybody's 
in the same area and everybody knows, every, you know, it, it's just, you're a community. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent the first 18 years of my life there and mm -hmm. I got to, when I graduated, you know, was getting close to graduation of high school, I just knew that I wanted to have a new experience. Not that, because there, there was colleges in my hometown and, and places I could have stayed and not that there's anything wrong with staying in your hometown for, for school, but to me, I felt a desire to meet people and see things that I've never seen before. Meet people I've never seen before, have experiences that I've never, be, be in a relatively new place. I'd been to Chattanooga before numerous times, but I'd never lived here and, and been a part of the community. And so uh, we toured you know, the school, toured the campus, and I really enjoyed it. And that was all it took for me. I said, well, this is a great place for me. I enjoy Chattanooga. I like the school and it has everything I need. And so uh, that's what initially drove me here. And you know, no city is perfect. No, no place is perfect. Uh, but over time, I've I've just fallen more in love with the area, with the people that I work with, the people that I've met here, um, and and had nothing but great experiences while I've been here. And so um, I finished. <laughs> I I started out uh, at, at UTC. I went went to UTC and started out there uh, in engineering, and quickly realized mm -hmm. that that was not the field for me. Uh, I don't <laughs> like calculus. I'm not good at physics, and it just was not the, the right field for me. Um, and so I changed from there to accounting and then finished ultimately with a degree in finance. And so kind of tried out a few different things and ended up enjoying what I what I finished out in and found that uh, I really enjoyed the, not necessarily the, the whole, you know, people that work in business, like there's a lot of different reasons why people go to it. I found that I enjoyed the processes in finance and how how you got to a desired outcome with the different you know projects and stuff we would do rather than you know the aspect of trying to make money necessarily or trying to uh, trying to learn how to make the right investment portfolio. I was more concerned with the processes and systems that allowed those things to happen. I, I was very curious about that. Uh, it was something that uh, you know I was really interested in. So that's initially what or eventually where I graduated in and. Here I am working here now. So yeah. yeah. So when you described Englewood, yeah, I also had the image of a big fish in a small pond. Yeah. <laughs> because you wanted to leave, you wanted something yeah. more. Yeah. And so Chattanooga, it's a small big town. Yeah. But compared to Englewood, compared to where it's I'm from, this is <laughs> like a much yes, yes. It, it, it's funny. I meet a lot of people from school that are you know from like the Nashville area and the Memphis area, and we'll you know get chatting and. And I'll ask, oh, wait, where are you from? And they're like, oh, I'm from a kind of a smaller town outside of Nashville. I'm from a smaller town outside of Memphis. And I'll ask them where they're from. They're like, oh, I'm from the, the Franklin area. And I'm like, listen, you don't, it compared to the, you know, downtown Nashville, yes, that is smaller. But I was like, you, you do not know what it's like to like, that's not a small town, that's a suburb. That is a different thing, you know. Uh, so I'm telling you, my, my high school, we shared a field, our, we shared a football field with a farm. Uh, we were, we were real, real small town, so, but it's yeah. home, it's home, you know. So yeah. uh, I love it for what it is, you know. So do you recall having any experiences of self-doubt in Englewood? Um, yeah, um, so one in particular, so I played, I played sports my whole life. Uh, when I was in middle school and in grade school, I, you know, pretty much any sport that was in season, I played it. When basketball was going on, I played basketball. Football was going on, I played football. Soccer was going on, I played like, you know, whichever one was happening at the time, I did it. Um, and growing up, I, I've always been an individual who I want to, 
I try, I, I'm, I guess I'll say somewhat of a people pleaser, not to the extent where I'm, I feel like I'm breaking my back, but I like to, you know, make people solve problems, make people happy. I want to have mm-hmm. a good relationship with people. Mm-hmm. And so I ultimately decided to play basketball in high school. I played all four years. And looking back, I learned a lot of things through that time. I enjoyed playing. I had made a lot of friends on the team. Uh, but mm. during that time, I had a really hard time with being overly critical of myself. Uh, you know, if I did something wrong or if I missed a shot or if I fouled someone when I shouldn't, you know, those are parts of the game. Everyone does that. Um, and no player is perfect. Every player misses a shot at some point. Uh, but for me, I, I had a really hard time dealing, balancing the good with the bad when I got to the high school level. Um, I wasn't some phenom by any means, but uh, it was something that I, it really took me a, a while to get a good grasp on balancing the good with the bad up until about my senior year I I got to a point where I was able to accept the reality of my skill with the game uh, and just enjoy it and I did not you know worry too much over the semantics and just go out there and give my best effort and have fun with it while I could Um, but it was something that for a long time I really had trouble with because I would compare myself to other players compare myself to people that I knew uh, and it would be a, a tough personal battle trying to balance the good with the bad and, and deal with the over, you know, over comparison of myself to others in the sport as well. So that, that's the first one that comes to mind for me personally. Yeah. yeah. And then did you have anyone in your life that really wanted to see you excel? Um, not to an unhealthy degree. I, I wouldn't say so. No, not, not really. I mean, you know, my, my parents come to mind because they wanted me to, they wanted me to excel not in a, not in a way where they felt like they were, you know, on top of me, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but they always just encouraged me to get my, do my best, uh, whatever field I was in, whether it's school, sports, whatever, uh, you know, give my best and, and excel. And, and at the end of the day, leave it all in the classroom, leave it all in the field, you know, do whatever you can to uh, excel in, in whatever field you're in. So not to like an unhealthy degree, I wouldn't say. Um, but I mean, I had, I had very encouraging individuals that, that wanted me, want to see me succeed and, and wanted to see me do, uh, you know, live a, live a life that I was happy with. So, um, overall, I, I, I wouldn't say I had too many individuals who were, you know, causing me to burn the candle at both ends, I guess, to put it that way, you know? Yeah. Did yeah. you have any siblings? I did. I have two siblings. Uh, I'm, I'm a middle child. Uh, I was in, I was the youngest for about 10 years. Um, I have an older sister about three years older than me, and then when I was in the fifth grade, we actually adopted uh, a, my younger sister from China. Uh, mm. When she was about one year old, we adopted her from there, and now I've got two wonderful sisters. So, uh, one of them who is going to be entering high school soon, so that's going to be interesting uh, to see her go through that part of her life. Uh, but yeah, i got two, two siblings. So. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like you guys are still pretty tight-knit, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we all live respective lives. Obviously, I'm down here in Chattanooga right now. My older sister currently lives and works in South Carolina. Uh, my younger sister is still with my, uh, my mother and father. Uh, and they live up in Inglewood, but a little over an hour away. But, you know, we're still really tight-knit and, uh, you know, a great family. So I can't complain, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then who inspired you as you grew up? Who did you look up to? Hmm. Um, I know this is a very cliche answer, uh, so forgive me for that. But on, honestly, um, I really was inspired a lot. I, I don't know if I if I truly grasped it at the time, 
Um, but my, my, my mom and dad really did inspire me a lot mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that they were individuals and still are to this day. I mean, they're not perfect. No individual is. But um, they were individuals that always were upfront and honest. They, they, what they did, they did to the best of their abilities. And they never tried to shortchange anybody. You always knew what you were getting with them. They were very upfront. They were, they were not going to try and, you know, pull anything over you or anything like that. They were upstanding, honest people. Mm. And I saw, I saw the benefits of that in their life. And I knew that I didn't know where my life was going to take me, but I wanted to emulate that the best I could wherever I went in my life. And so I still try to do that to this day. They're not the only people that do that, but um, they were definitely the first examples of that in my life and people I used to and still do look up to. So, yeah. Yeah, It sounds like they really set a high bar. Yeah. Yeah. And still provided a loving, supported, supportive atmosphere. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it's still fascinating how those of us who grow up where we see grownups mm-hmm. or, uh, no, I'll just leave it at grownups yeah. that are shiny. Yeah. If yeah. they're shiny and mm-hmm. if they're impressive yeah. and then if you're associated to them, then it's like, <gasps> yeah. I want to make sure I belong. Yeah. I want to yeah. make sure I fit in. Yeah. I want to make sure that I, uh, yeah, I want to be in their league. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that pressure is yeah. enough yes. to have us go above and beyond. Yeah, you know, something that another instance in my life where more recent than in high school, uh, so I mentioned how in my personal life, when I first started at UTC, I was an engineering major. And I'll tell you one thing I've learned, if, if engineering majors, they are a different breed. If they can complete that degree, big respect to them. That is a tough field to yes. be in. Uh, but it was a unique experience for me being in there because that was the first time where I was, growing up, I was not like, you know, a, I was not the smartest person. All mm. like, I was not, I was never the valedictorian. Like I was, I, I made good grades in school, you know, growing up, uh, but I was never like, you know, top of the list all the time, every single year. That was, I was just, you know, I was a good student. Um, and so I never really faced too much of a challenge in school until I got to that, that semester, that year. Mm. And that really, like, personally was a tough time for me because that was the first time I'd really faced, honestly, potential failure in mm. the classroom. I'd never fallen that hard in the classroom mm-hmm. before, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was a time where I started to worry about like, oh my goodness, this is my first semester in college. Like, am I going to be able to live up to the standards and expectations that I have for myself? Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously four years removed from now, I've graduated. I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Uh, and and I'm, I'm in a good place, but times like that, you know, they do test you and, and you begin to work, you, not worry, you begin to wonder like, am I, am I made for this? Like, do I have the, the right things for this job, for this, uh, in my case, it was a major. And so I think that to a degree, having those, those expectations and those standards can put good pressure on you, pressure to uh, you know, persevere through hard times and, and to perform to the highest level that you can. Mm-hmm. But also at times it can, it can you know, be destructive if you don't keep it on a, on a tight leash. You know? mm-hmm. so. so another thing that comes to mind, yeah. if, you have ha- if you've been surrounded by people who are highly successful, mm-hmm and you've not witnessed them going through a ton of failure, mm-hmm. then you don't have a transcript, mm-hmm. you don't have a book, you don't have yeah. a guide, there's no instruction manual to mm-hmm. teach you how to manage and how to healthfully navigate and overcome mm-hmm. failure. Yeah. So that's really, really intimidating yeah. when you're finally in a challenging enough situation yeah. and you realize, wow, my, my natural talents and abilities are not 
good enough mm -hmm. to surmount this particular mountain. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was something I really dealt with a lot during that time is, you know, I had never, to that point, I had always just imagined like failure or, or underperforming is, is always a bad thing. Like it's never mm -hmm. a good thing. But the reality is like, we all fall short in some way. Like we're all gonna mess up at something. We're all gonna try something that we're not great at and that's just life. Uh, and so the thing that I learned is that failure is going to happen. Whether you like it or not, it's going to happen, hopefully not all the time, but it's some of the time it's going to happen. And so being able to learn from that and understand that failure does not mean that you have, you know, uh, that you are not a capable human being or not, it doesn't mean that you are not eligible for success in the future. It just means that now you have an experience you can learn from. And that was something that was a hard pill for me to swallow at that time, but it helped me get through the following three to four years of school uh, and get to where I am now. So obviously there's lots of room to grow and things to learn and things to do, uh, but I'm looking back very appreciative for those experiences, even though at the time I didn't really enjoy them, <laughs> I guess to put it to put it lightly, you know? Uh, but they're definitely formative, you know, formative for me personally, and I imagine for a lot of other people, they're very formative as well, so. Yeah, and so as far as imposter syndrome goes, we've kind of covered the basis of all the, the main ingredients yeah. that make it what it is. There's the self-doubt, mm -hmm. there's the striving, mm -hmm. and then there's the sense of a fraud, not mm -hmm. fitting in and not belonging. Yeah. And so we kind of just covered that by yeah. going around the map. Yeah. And especially it activates or it triggers once you're outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. It's when you finally are taking a real risk mm -hmm. and you face real failure mm -hmm. that it's going to flare up. Yeah. And depending on how resourced you were or how many resources you have, it's gonna determine whether you sink or fail mm -hmm. in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's, that's a very interesting way of looking at it is that for one, I think that most people, whether you succeed or fail is there, there is a Part of that is due to your personal output and what you put into it. You know, if, if you're wanting to succeed at something but you don't put, uh, you know, enough effort into it, there's there's some responsibility upon your shoulders. But I think what, what you're getting at also is that, while that is true, there are many external factors that that culminate and allow a per that can allow a person to excel or fall short. Uh, and, and understanding that and being able to unpack that is, is crucial, I think, to learning from those experiences. You know, for example, if I set out to do some kind of project and I exceed at it and I, I win first place, so that's great. But uh, understanding that, yes, you, you put your own effort into it, but there were also likely people that helped you get to that point is crucial to not allow not uh, not making the same mistakes in the future. And the same thing goes that if you fall short, if you if you try to go for you know some kind of achievement and maybe you don't reach that achievement. Well understanding that yes, maybe maybe you could have performed better. Maybe maybe there's things that you could have done in the future you know in the future that uh, you should have done this time. But also understanding that there are many external factors that may be outside of your control that are causing you to underperform or causing you to not get the result that you wanted. Um, I think having that healthy perspective is is necessary when you're dealing with those life experiences, you know, uh, and and something that I imagine everybody to some degree deals with, especially when you're thinking about you know imposter syndrome and and you know just perfectionism overall. Uh, if you're trying to live a life where you're just the best at everything and, and you don't want to make any mistakes, um, that's not a that's that's not a healthy way of doing things. You know, you, you never want to view your life as uh, like you're walking on a tightrope and there's no room to, to potentially go back to left or right, you want to understand that 
at times it can be like that, but there's always external factors helping you and, and, and uh, you know, influencing you as you go throughout your life. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's an important thing to, to remember, you know. Yeah. yeah, I really appreciate you emphasizing the external yeah. factors. Um, there's that age-old age question, right? Is it the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Um, nature or nurture? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, personal responsibility, collective mm -hmm. responsibility. Yeah. Um, it's yes yeah. to all it's of a, the it's above. It's a mix a lot of a lot of it. Right. And like you could see with my career arc, when I worked with some of the people that were struggling the most, I saw people that had the fire in their eyes and in their heart, mm -hmm. and yet they just couldn't the storm was too intense yeah. for them to be able to get to the top and yeah. not drown. Yeah. So personal responsibility is a big piece of it, but then so is resilience. Mm -hmm. All the things that were invested mm -hmm. and put into you at an earlier time. Mm -hmm. And so I see that in your family of origin, they gave you some good stuff to work with <laughs> so that when you were challenged, you had the resilience yeah. to be able to navigate and persevere mm -hmm. through the adverse circumstances yeah. that you faced. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has a robust foundation yeah. to help them yeah. navigate the, the storm. Yeah, and, and I think that, and that, that's okay. You know, everybody's his story is different. Uh, I, something that I routinely try to remind myself of is, you know, if you, if you look just, this, I guess this is my, my finance degree in, in motion here. Hmm. Uh, but if you if you look at the stock market on any given day, uh, it could be up, it could be down, it could be up, down, up, down. Like it's you never know what it's going to be. Each and every day, each each hour, it's going to be different. Uh, and trying to predict what will happen on a hour by hour, day by day basis is virtually impossible in a lot of ways. It's it's, it's very difficult to do. However, if you take a zoom out even, mm -hmm. you know, six months, a mm -hmm. year, three, five, ten years, it's almost a linear straight line up from, from a broad scale. Sure. Not for necessarily for one specific company, but if right. you're looking at the market as a whole, if you were to zoom out, you know, decades, mm -hmm. it would look like a straight line going mm -hmm. straight up. Mm -hmm. And to me, the way I look at that in my life is that in the day-to-day, -day, there's gonna be ups and downs. Each day is gonna be different. There's gonna be days where things are going great and you're going straight up. There's gonna be days where it's not going great and you're going straight down. Uh, but the reality is that most of us, I believe, and, and a large part of this is on our shoulders, but also just to the way of, of, of life, is that uh, I think despite the ups and the downs, many of us from the broad perspective are headed in the right direction. We just don't see that future point yet. We focus on what's happening right here in front of us right now to where we can't see the fact that even though today might be a little bit down, tomorrow we might take two steps forward, even though today was one step backward. Uh, and, and having that proper perspective of over time, we're accumulating small wins, small experiences that teach us things. Um, I think that's a great perspective to have regardless of whatever your background is, whether you have a great and affluent beginning or whether you've been handed a horrible you know, hand of cards from the beginning, whatever your background is, understanding that perspective is, is crucial, I think, to living a successful, however you define that, uh, and, and prosperous life, in, in my opinion. You know? mm -hmm. You're describing the mindset, yeah. the, the paradigm, the, the big picture, yeah. right? Would you say that that's something you learned or would you say that that was something you were taught? I think for me personally, I mean, maybe a mix of both. Uh, I, I would, 
I guess I would, if I had to lean more towards more towards anything, I would say just through experience, I learned that you know I'm sure someone over time has told me that. I'm sure the, the people have looked at me and said, you know, in in the midst of a hard time, like it's going to be okay, like things are going to work, whatever. Uh, but I think for me personally, it really stuck when I was able to go through good times and bad times, and then be able to look back and see how those things allowed me to have the proper perspective I need to learn from those experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think for me personally, it was it was more more experience based. Uh, but you know, there's a mix of a lot of you know in, in that regard. I think that it's a little bit of a mix, but definitely experience was a, was a huge contributing factor in mm. that regard. One of the things that I'm trying to be intentional about with my work is making sure my psychobabble is <laughs> relatable and down to earth. <laughs> yeah. You know, so instead of just keeping it, you know, in, in the office that most people <laughs> want to not be seen walking yeah. out of. Yeah. Um, I want to use language that. Is, is routinely used, especially in my high achiever world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so growth mindset and fixed mindset. Yeah. So what you're describing is having a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And what I have found with the wide, uh, the wide scope of experience that I've had mm-hmm. is that some people, their life experiences put them in a position where they have a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, people don't change unless there is incentive mm-hmm. to change. Yeah. And sometimes that incentive never comes until you fail Mm -hmm. in such a way that you can't get up right away. And we might be able to call that burnout. Mm -hmm. And so I am especially interested in helping the people who have imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and have a fixed mindset Mm -hmm. and hopefully give them incentive to get help before they need it, Mm -hmm. to get it because they want it so that they don't have to have uh, their world fall apart, yeah. the ground fall from underneath their feet before they're ready to be pliable yeah. and to change the way that yeah. they think. Well, what it, what it kind of sounds like is what you're trying to do to a degree is, you know, help steer the Titanic away from the iceberg before you hit it. You know, <laughs> exactly. they may, they may not be perfect. able to see that, you know, if, yeah. if, you, if your client or individual you're working with is the captain of that ship, they may not see the iceberg way off in the distance, but you're trying to show them that it's there and you know we need to try and steer away yeah. from it as best we can well you know even before, if they do late, you know before you, know, you yeah even if they do see the iceberg yeah. i mean part of the problem was that they didn't know how how deep and wide it <laughs> yeah. was underneath right yeah, so yeah. this perspective that says oh that's fine yeah. i can handle it yeah. yeah it's just this thing yeah no yeah it is way bigger <laughs> and more sinister than you realize yeah. so let's be proactive instead of reactive yeah and the the, the tough thing about Thing I know we're being you know kind of using different example here, but uh, the tough thing about a lot of stuff like this is that you know if someone is if someone falls and scrapes their knee and you know they're bleeding from their knee, like you you see exactly what's happening, like that you can see the wound and the thing that needs to be healed right there, and you know you know exactly where your point of of work starts. Uh, but with a lot of things, like it sounds like at least from what you're talking about and things that we've been discussing, is that oftentimes it may not be extremely obvious to either you or the individual you're working with. There's not gonna be some, you know, if someone's dealing with their metaphorical, you know, iceberg, Titanic, it's not gonna have some giant sign painted on them saying, hey, I'm dealing with this thing. It's gonna be a little bit more, uh, you know, difficult to uncover and, and, and understand w- what exactly you're dealing with. Um, and so I, I imagine that it can be difficult for these individuals to really 
get to the bottom of what they're dealing with. But once they get to that point, once you're able to show them, hey, there is this iceberg in front of you and it may not look very big, but there's a lot of danger underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, once they get to that point where they can realize what's ahead of them, I think that's, I would imagine that's the point where growth really starts to happen, where problems really start to get solved and they really start to understand where, how they've gotten to where they are and how they can correct their course going forward, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so what I would say is required for that is awareness and the right language. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, here's why it's so <coughs> subtle and they might not be able to tell that, whoa, there's way more ice underneath the water that yeah. I can't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. Um, so with high achievers specifically, yeah, they're known overachievers for their perfectionistic tendencies. And as far as when they're observed from the outside, they just seem like they're go, 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 doing, 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 high performing. Mm-hmm. But what you don't see is that secretly they are procrastinating. Mm-hmm. And they make sure that others don't observe or find out. And in fact, when they have it, they are so ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. And they are down on themselves big time Mm -hmm. and they're just calling it laziness Mm -hmm. i'm just lazy Mm -hmm. but what needs to happen is to for the person to become aware when you're procrastinating that is your body's way of going into low battery mode Mm -hmm. yeah that is your body's way of conserving resources I mean, you know, a cell phone, you should be able to go all day without having to recharge it by the end of the night. But procrastination means that you have used so much of the bandwidth and the resources that you have to recharge more frequently. Mm -hmm. And so just becoming aware of that, just being able to name that, Mm -hmm. you could stop, you can reduce the level of stress that you're bringing into your life by at least having less of a negative mindset mm-hmm. and less of a downer mindset. Because the more that you speak to yourself adversely, the more awful you're gonna end up feeling. Yeah. And then it's gonna take longer to get back on your feet. Yeah. But yeah, that's one way that people don't realize the, the intimate relationship between perfectionism and procrastination. Mm-hmm. And how that's like one of the low level warning signs that like, hey. yeah. You're doing too much. Yeah, <laughs> you're overfunctioning. There's a, there's an iceberg ahead. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. great. That's great. Um, well, I know we've talked. We've covered a lot of ground here, uh, and I've, <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to chat with you and and hear a little about you. Uh, before we kind of begin to wrap things up here, uh, I want to say first and foremost, thank you for just coming in and, and chatting with me. Uh, I, I mentioned before, and, and I'll say it again. You know. My goal with this with this show in particular is, is always to bring in people of different backgrounds, of different life experiences, and have open conversations with them. And I always like to hear from individuals like yourself that really deal with the intimate parts of our lives because uh, it's a unique perspective that I don't think we on the outside looking in really get to see inside of a lot. And so I appreciate you uh, just, just being open and chat with me about your personal life experience, about how you got to where you are today and, and hopefully what you can do in the future. Um, before we kind of finish up, just as a thank you to you, I always like to give the guests uh, the chance just to have the floor. So if there's anyone you'd like to give a shout out to, if there's anything that you're working on that you'd like to talk about, if you've got a, you know, a, a, an Instagram page for your dog that you want to plug, whatever you want to do, uh, I want to give you a chance just to have the floor uh, and just address the people however you like. So the floor is yours. Yeah, Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that are coming up that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, One of them is an opportunity to speak about imposter syndrome for a TEDx event in Chattanooga. It's going to be on November 16th. 
And you'll get to hear a little bit more about the details of my story mm -hmm. and some of the things that I went through mm -hmm. and uh, uh, in-depth breakdown mm -hmm. of imposter syndrome. So if that's a subject that you're interested in, be sure to buy tickets. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of the tickets is to go to the Instagram page of TEDx Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. They have a link in their bio where you can buy tickets. Um, aside from that, I'm also a member of the Chattanooga Women's Leadership Institute, and I am honored to be teaching a course on emotional intelligence. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, a group of Chattanooga women leaders want to grow and expand, and uh, they've been doing the coursework once a month, um, and I just happen to be teaching about emotional intelligence the the first week of November. So nice. I'm excited for that opportunity. Nice. And um, yeah, I actually have a couple of openings as well. So if you have any people that uh, identify as anxious achievers mm -hmm. or high achievers that are over-functioning mm -hmm. that could use some help with anxiety, imposter syndrome, or relationship stress, I have some availability and be happy to help. Awesome, awesome. And I know that you have a LinkedIn. And so if anybody's listening, watching that wants to get in touch with you, I'll put that link in the description of this episode. Are there any other ways that would be best to contact you? Or do you have like a, like a website or anything if anybody's interested in just you or the work that you do that they could they can go to to check out? Yeah, so uh, my website is currently under reconstruction. Okay. I do have a Psychology Today profile. Yeah. You mentioned LinkedIn. Yeah. And then I also have an Instagram page. Mm -hmm. um, the handle is Fearless Permission. Okay where I provide psychoeducation and information for right. high achievers. Cool. Well, I'll make sure that's all put down there. Uh, if by the time the episode comes out, if the website is up and running, I'll put that as that down there as well. Great. Uh, but yeah, I'll make sure down all that is in the description of the episode. So if you are listening or if you're watching and you would like to uh, check out any of the links that we've just mentioned, whether it's her LinkedIn or uh, just to read some more about uh, what she does, or if you'd like to, uh, you know, just research what it, all the, the different topics that we've talked about. Uh, I'll make sure that there are numerous links in today's description so you can uh, follow up with, uh, with everything that we've talked about or you can follow uh, you know, us, the show, on social media and things like that. So uh, with all that out of the way, thank you again uh, for, for just taking the time to come in today. I greatly do appreciate you being willing to take a little bit of time of your day and chat with me and just be open about your story. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a great pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate how collaborative this was because yeah. I got to ask you questions too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I had a really great time getting to know you better, yeah. Daniel. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Um, for those of you that are listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, as always, we appreciate your support of the show. Uh, and we hope that you will join us on another episode of The Third Seat. Bye, everybody. Bye.